0: Turn to Mark chapter 2, if you would, beginning in verse 23. We'll read that here in a second. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. But as you're turning there, and I I apologize third week in a row that my voice is on the brink. Uh, Maybe y'all have heard these kind of things before, but there are a lot of really weird and strange laws that are still on the books in certain states or in certain cities and And uh, and I want to just read some of those that I found just through a little bit of research um, last night. Did you know that in Idaho, you have broken the law if your horse eats a fire hydrant? Just letting you know. To be careful in Idaho if your horse is near a fire hydrant because you will get a ticket if the horse eats it. In Florida, believe it or not, it's illegal to sing in in a public place wearing a swimsuit, which is probably a good thing. Although, I doubt that law is enforced very much. Um, This is a real law from Indiana. It is illegal to threaten to cut a child's ear off while giving them a haircut. Yes. I don't know about other times, but while you're giving them the haircut, you cannot threaten to cut their ear off. It's illegal. Uh, In Alaska, it's illegal to push a moose out of a helicopter. (laughs) Getting the moose in the helicopter, no problem. No problem. No laws against that. It's pushing the moose out of the helicopter that has the lawmakers there very concerned. In Kansas, you're breaking the law if you hunt rabbits from a motorboat. I like this one. In Montana, you're breaking the law if you have more than one alarm clock ringing at the same time. That's right. And I was going to say, there's some of you here who say, yes, that, let's push that law here. Now... I also found some odd laws that are on the books that pertain particularly to how people are allowed to behave on Sundays. For example, in Blackwater, Kentucky, tickling a woman under her chin with a feather duster while she's in church service carries a penalty of $10 and one day in jail. I imagine that law was written many, many years ago when Kentucky was still a frontier state. And some mischievous young men decided to bring a feather duster and tickle some lady during the middle of the sermon and therefore, they passed a law saying if you do that, it's $10 and one day in jail. Um, in, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, Edona, Oregon, if I'm pronouncing that right, no one can eat unshelled roasted peanuts while attending church. All right? No citizen of Lee Creek, Arkansas is allowed to attend church in any red-colored garment. I have no idea. So there's some of you in here that would be in trouble right now. I see you guys if you were in Lee Creek, Arkansas. In uh, Studley, Virginia, swinging a yo-yo in church or anywhere near a church on Sunday is prohibited. No swinging of a yo-yo. And finally, in Slaughter, Louisiana, turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a local church on Sundays. Now, these may all seem silly to you. And in today's text, we have an issue of the law being broken, or at least some believing that the law has been broken, God's law. Now, God's law itself, that we have in Holy Scripture, God's law is not silly or frivolous. It's perfect. But, as history progressed in the nation of Israel, some men added to God's law, reckoning that they needed to add to God's law in order to make it even better, perhaps, or to protect it, even. And in the process, they made it insensible. And some of the laws and regulations that they put around God's law became absolutely frivolous, silly. So today we are continuing our series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a chronological, verse-by-verse walk through the life of Jesus using all four of the Gospels. We desire to see our Lord Jesus more fully as we go through this series and therefore worship Him more rightly. Today we'll be looking at Continuing to look at the early part of Jesus' ministry, his early Galilean ministry. And our passage is Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. So we're covering a little bit larger section today. This this account is paralleled in Matthew and in Luke. In Matthew, it's in chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And in Luke, it's chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. But we're going to read from Mark. So please stand now as we read. And we stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. In the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to this passage of Scripture, we ask that you would use it to mold our hearts to your will and to your word. God, give us receptive hearts. Give us open ears. Give us open eyes. Lord, I pray that you'd grant me the next 40 minutes or so of a voice so that I might be able to preach. But more importantly than a voice, I pray, Lord, that you give me a right mind so I might preach it accurately. So we thank you again for this day. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to today's text, let me remind you that it's found at the end of a series of confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. We read way back in John chapter 4... When Jesus had his early Judean ministry before going up to Galilee, that the Pharisees were already upset with Jesus because he was baptizing more people than John was. And it was that reason that he left Judea at that time, went through Samaria where he had a ministry to the woman at the well, and then came to Galilee. And that's the period of time we're in now, his ministry in Galilee. That's his hometown region. and It's also the hometown of his disciples. Uh, But not much time passed in in his ministry in Galilee before once again the attention of the Pharisees was drawn to him. Uh, So much so that many of the Pharisees and scribes, even from Jerusalem and Judea, scriptures tell us, had come up to see what was going on with this this Jesus fellow. And so in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through the end of what we just read, Mark chapter 3, verse 6, this is a section of scripture where there are five confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they gain with intensity as each one progresses. It started with Jesus healing the paralytic man who was lowered to Jesus by four friends. And it wasn't so much the healing of this man that uh, that made them so mad at Jesus. It was actually before he actually healed him physically that Jesus pronounced his sins to be forgiven. The Pharisees were quite miffed by this, and and they accused Jesus of blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. Well, their theology was right. Only God could forgive sins. But they were blind to the reality of who Jesus was. The next incident was Jesus calling Levi, or Matthew, same person, to be his disciple. To be formerly one of his disciples. And then the subsequent party at Matthew's house. And we saw that the Pharisees were quite upset by this because the um, tax collectors were the most despised of all people. So the problem was that he had chosen this despised tax collector to be his disciple. And then there was this party which was made up of the who's who of immoral people in Capernaum. The Pharisees viewed Jesus' actions as not only ones that made him ceremonially unclean, but also scandalous. Because to eat with a sinner was to fellowship with the sinner. A good, upstanding, respectable person wouldn't, wouldn't do this. And so they, they surely felt that Jesus couldn't be the fellow that he claimed to be. He couldn't be a good man at all. But Jesus rebuked their self-righteous attitudes by saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees' problem was that they didn't realize that they were sick. That they too were sinners in, in desperate need of spiritual healing. Then last week, we saw that Jesus was confronted not only by the Pharisees, but by John's disciples as well. John the Baptist, that is. This time, it was in regards to a religious ritual, namely fasting. Jesus told them that his disciples couldn't fast while the bridegroom was with them. This was a subtle claim to deity, if you'll remember from last week. So not only had Jesus already claimed authority to forgive sins, now he was here claiming to be the bridegroom of Israel. And only Yahweh was called that in the Old Testament. He then went on to give one of the earliest foreshadowings of his death when he said that they will fast, they will experience true fasting once the bridegroom has been taken away. So that brings us up to speed and we come to these last two confrontations which we're covering today in one sermon. And they both have to do with the observance of the Sabbath. Now, fasting was important to the Jew Uh, Remaining clean, ceremonially, I have a hard time saying that word, clean, was also important to the Jew. But the topic of the Sabbath was on top of the list. The Sabbath was more important than, than anything else. And as Jesus challenges the established religious leaders' understanding of the Sabbath, he enters into a subject arena that will draw the most bitter reaction yet from the Pharisees. So much so that at the end of today's text, as you've already seen, they begin to strategize on how to get rid of him once and for all. So to understand today's sermon, we need to understand the Sabbath. Now, you may know all there is to know about the Jewish Sabbath, and that's great, but we need to take a few moments this morning to make sure we're all on the same page. The Sabbath, simply put, was the designation for the seventh day in the Jewish week. The seventh day of the Jewish week. It was a day that, by God's command was to be set aside to cease from work and to seek God. It had a few different meanings, though. First of all, it was to be an imitation of God's own rest after the completion of his created work. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in, Here it is, for, because, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So we see a foundational basis Here for the Sabbath, which is based upon the creative work of God and his people are to imitate him and to honor the Sabbath, to see it as holy because he set it apart as holy. But also it's given to Israel as a reminder of him delivering them from the bondage of Egypt and thus bringing them into a land of rest. Uh, Deuteronomy 5 verses 12 through 15 speak of this and I'll just pick it up at verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. To keep the Sabbath day. Therefore, because God has brought you out of bondage and slavery and brought you in and is bringing you into a land of rest, you shall keep the day of rest. So it was given that people would honor God for what he did in creation. And honor God for what he did in delivering them from slavery. But also was given to Israel as a covenant sign. Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. And I'll just read the first couple of verses of this passage. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Nowhere is the plucking of grain condemned in God's law. I mean, it's, it's allowed, allowed to do it. Nowhere is it condemned on the Sabbath. The only thing that comes close is Exodus 34, which teaches that the Sabbath was to be observed during seasons of plowing and seasons of harvest. So I guess these guys, these Pharisees, with their ability to turn the, the trivial into a national tragedy, viewed what the disciples were doing as harvesting. But it wasn't. So they viewed it as work. And thus a violation of the Sabbath. But instead of getting into an argument with them about what was and what was not work, Jesus simply takes them to God's word and lets it be his apologetic. We can learn a lot from how Jesus handles opposition from Satan to Pharisees. He simply reminds them what God has already said. And so he takes them to 1 Samuel 21, verse 25 here in Mark. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? when he was in need and was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but for the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, before I get into looking at why Jesus chose this text, and it is a little bit curious, why did he choose this text? I want to make one quick mention about the name Abiathar, okay? For those of you in here who... Study this text, probably familiar with this, if you go to 1 Samuel 21, you will not see that name in 1 Samuel 21. You'll see the name Ahimelech. And if you look at the genealogies of the priest and you see in, in those texts, Ahimelech was actually the father of Abiathar. Ahimelech was Abiathar's father. So technically, Abiathar was not there. It was Ahimelech. But the scripture doesn't say that Abiathar was there. It says, in the time Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because you may be familiar with a guy named Bart Ehrman. How many of you all have heard of that guy? Mr. Ehrman has written a couple of different books, one of them being uh, Misquoting Jesus, and he's written some other ones. He's on the attack against Christianity. He he basically is on the attack against the authority of Scripture, but in the process, really, his attack is against Christianity. Now, he says that this text is the text that caused him to lose his faith. He's now now an agnostic. This text right here, he said because he was studying it, he went to a fundamentalist Bible college, which already was part of the problem. He's in a fundamentalist Bible college, and he came across this text. His teacher said, you need to defend why a is mentioned here instead of a And he came back, and he couldn't defend it. He was so upset by it. And his professor said, have you ever considered the possibility there may just be errors in the Bible? He had never considered that possibility before, and as a result, he went away and he rejected the authority of Scripture and ended up walking away from his whole faith, from God, from everything else in the process. What's silly is you don't have to do that with this text. When it says here, in the time of Abiathar, it's referring to a period of time when his influence was present in Israel. I will give you an example here from real life here in a second. But this was the way they referred. So it may or may not be a specific time from from when he started as high priest to when he ended as high priest. But just a, a period of time because he was the better known of the high priest. Ahimelech, his father, wasn't as well known. So this was the time when his influence was on the people of Israel as the high priest. And that's okay. As a matter of fact, they probably used terms like this during the time of Abiathar as a label even for Scripture. They didn't have the the verses and the chapters and the the books like we do today. So they go to, to the second volume of Samuel there and they find the portion where it's the time of Abiathar. Let me just give you an example of how we use labels like that loosely. When did the Berlin Wall fall? Who was president? No. Herbert Walker Bush was president you realize that? But what do we say? We say the Berlin Wall fell during the Reagan era. Why? Because Reagan was the influential person in that whole process. He's the one who stood there and said, Mr. Gorbachev, bring down this wall. And so we say the Berlin Wall and communism in general fell during the Reagan era, although technically it fell while George Herbert Walker Bush was president. We use language like that all the time, and that's what's going on here. So... If you don't buy that and if you're going to walk away from the faith today because it says Abiathar instead of Ahimelech, please talk to me during the fellowship meal and maybe over a pot of chili I can convince you otherwise. Now, it's still an interesting decision here for Jesus to choose this passage of Scripture to refer to. Why? Because this passage actually does involve someone breaking the ceremonial laws of God. David, by eating the bread of the presence, was violating the ceremonial laws of God. So why would Jesus go to this passage? I think, first of all, he's trying to show these Pharisees how their legalism had boxed themselves and others in when God's law actually does no such thing. For if what David did by violating a ceremonial command of God was not unlawful, how much more was what these disciples did not unlawful either? Jesus was not interested in refuting the Pharisees point by point. But he shows these self-appointed keepers of morality... ...that they themselves couldn't even make sense of the scriptures that they were trying to defend. For if they had been present at the scene in 1 Samuel 21... ...they would have condemned David, God's anointed. They had a man-centered interpretation of the law that left no room for mercy... They miss the heart of the law, to love God and to love your neighbor. And instead, they love themselves and condemn their neighbor. That's what legalism is. Love myself, condemn my neighbor. It's the opposite of the heart of what God's law is all about. So here they sit now, condemning the son of David, God's anointed, But Ahimelech, he understood the heart, the spirit of the law, and he wasn't going to condemn David. He knew that the spirit of the law was not violated by David's actions, for God's law was ultimately designed for life and not death. Ceremony, ritual, tradition were never intended by God to stand in the way of mercy, kindness, goodness, and necessity. But the Pharisees didn't care about any of that. They added weight. They added burdens. They failed to see that... The role of the Sabbath and the law in general was for mercy and for the good of man. And that's why Matthew's account of this story, and you can turn over there if you want to, Matthew 12. I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. Matthew says this, And if you had known what this means, and now he quotes Hosea 6.6, If you would have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. This is the second time that Matthew has quoted Hosea 6, six. ...the first time to condemn the hypocrisy of the Pharisees... ...and this time to condemn their inability to see that mercy... ...trumps religious ritual keeping. Compassion trumps legalism. God had designed the law for the good of man... ...not in calloused indifference to man's situation. But Jesus here, he doesn't just remove the burden of a legalistic Sabbath. I also want us to say that in this text... Jesus restored the original purpose of the genuine Sabbath. He restored the original purpose of the genuine Sabbath. And he does that with the very next thing he says in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift. The Sabbath was grace. It was for man's good. It was to be a blessing. Life was hard in an agrarian culture. I think you can only imagine. You think life is hard for you now with your cell phones and your cars and everything else. Imagine living back then how much harder it was to actually work. It was hard. Every day was filled with toil. Toil, by the way, was the direct result of the fall. The ground now had to be worked. Work and toil were part of man's plight. And so God... In the creation order, he gives grace. He gives a day of rest designed for man's good. A day of restoration, rejuvenation. A day to cease from the toil and to find rest. God didn't have to create a Sabbath. Yes, God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day. But the Almighty didn't rest uh, for himself. He didn't need rest. And although he ceased from his creative work, his work of providence continued... So Sabbath wasn't for God. Sabbath was for man. God gave the gift of rest and his command for them to observe it was a gracious command for man's good. But God's gift was not just the gift of rest in general. It was the gift of rest in him. They were to find their rest not in sitting around doing nothing, but in focusing their hearts and their minds on God. By reminding themselves of his goodness, of his power, of his steadfast love toward them. What a privilege, what a delight. They were to find their rest in enjoying God. That's what the Sabbath was to be all about. Psalm 92 that Peter read earlier in the service is the only psalm, by the way, in the Psalter specifically spoken of to be a psalm for the Sabbath. And this is what it says. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. This is what the people of God were supposed to sing on the Sabbath. What greater good thing can man receive than to receive the joy of knowing God and worshiping him rightly? What rest there is in worshiping and enjoying God? The Sabbath indeed was designed for man, for the good of man. But the Pharisees, they had twisted it around. They had made man subservient to the Sabbath and it turned a blessing into a burden. That's what legalism does. It always does. It twists God's word and turns it from a blessing into a burden. God didn't give the Sabbath to his people to oppress them. He gave it to bless them. Let me say that again. God didn't give the Sabbath to his people to oppress them, but to bless them. God hasn't given us his word, his commands, his precepts to oppress us, but to bless us. The Pharisees had turned the Sabbath on its head, and thus they missed God. Their legalistic attempt to keep the Sabbath actually caused them to miss it entirely. It was designed for them to love God and for that to overflow in love toward their neighbors. But by making it a burden, they demonstrated that they hated their neighbors. And by adding legalistic work when God had commanded rest, they demonstrated that they hated God and his word too. Legalism is work, friends. That's all it is. It's works. Legalism, while veiled in the language that honors God, actually is hatred toward God and hatred toward men. Legalism is the perfect solution for the unregenerate heart. It puts on the outward clothing of being God-centered while the inward being is self-centered, proud, arrogant, and bound for hell. It's a fool's attempt to undo the bondage of sinful behavior with the equally deadly bondage of sinful self-righteousness. That's what legalism is. Friends, if you are here this morning and you're simply trying to keep a set of rules in order to be good enough for God to accept you, you are simply exchanging one type of bondage for another. It will not do. Perhaps you're here today because you are checking off some sort of check mark on your good deed list and you think God will take that into account. It will not work. Only Jesus was good enough. Only His goodness will be accepted before the Almighty. The Sabbath was designed to point men toward God, toward his power, toward his providence, toward his provision, toward his protection, toward his perfection. So that they might seek him in faith and rest in him. And now here is Jesus, the God-man, the embodiment of all those things I just said because he is the image of the invisible God. But they want to kill him because legalism hates God and hates man. So it hates the God-man. Legalism hates God and hates man. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't want to see. They didn't see that a greater man than David was here. David was guiltless in his violation of God's ceremonial law. How much more was the son of David guiltless in his violation of these men's additions to the law? They didn't get it. So Jesus decides to drop a bombshell. I love when Jesus does that. He just, you know, he'll just, he be talking. Also, verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Whoa. The claim that Jesus is making here to be Lord even of the Sabbath is huge. He is saying that he is sovereign over the Sabbath. That he is master over the Sabbath. That the Sabbath that was created for man was created by the Son of Man. Recall what the Sabbath was. It remembered and imaged God as creator who rested on the seventh day. It recalled and memorialized the deliverance God had given them from Egypt. It was a sign and seal of the old covenant God made with this people. By claiming sovereignty over the Sabbath, Jesus is saying that it was he who was the creator. It was he who was the deliverer. And it is he who seals the covenant. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. What Matthew records from Jesus' words makes it even clearer. I'm going to read the whole section to you. You can turn to Matthew chapter 12. Just flip over there real quick. Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 3. And I want you to read part of what we've already read. So you can see where Matthew records more of what Jesus says than what the other apostle writers recorded. So Matthew, he's not adding here. He's just recording more of what Jesus said than the other guys did. So here we go. Matthew chapter 12 verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Now right here, he begins to record something else that Jesus said. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, Jesus not only mentions the story of David, and I I believe in doing so he makes a veiled claim that he is the new David, by the way. Matthew shows us that he also mentioned Israel's priests. And the priests worked on the Sabbath. We read that in the Old Testament. They worked on the Sabbath. They were permitted to. Because of their position, it was allowable and it was right. Jesus is saying the Sabbath isn't about restricted behavior, but about right worship. Let me say that again. The Sabbath isn't about restricted behavior, but about right worship. And I believe, although it's veiled, that again we have another pointer here to who Jesus ultimately is. He's not only the new David, he's also a new type of priest. Now that might be veiled, but the next statement isn't so veiled. Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something new, namely, he, Jesus, is here. We've already heard him claim in John that he is the new temple. This text is tied to the theme of last week's sermon on fasting. A new era had dawned with the arrival of Jesus on the scene. The kingdom of God was breaking in and a new covenant was coming to bear. The temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, fasting, David, it was all pointing to Jesus. Those were all shadows and types and now the substance was on the scene. Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, has the right to replace the shadow of the Sabbath with the substance. Namely, himself. So here's my third point. Jesus also replaced the old shadow that pointed to a better Sabbath. He himself is the replacement of the old shadow. And the old shadow is the old Sabbath, which was pointing all along to a much better rest, a much better Sabbath. The sign of the old covenant was the Sabbath and Jesus was the fulfillment of the old covenant. So as a result, he sets men free from the old covenant and brings something new, a new covenant. Hebrews 7.22 says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The Christian, friends, therefore, is one who has come to Christ by grace alone... Through faith alone and is thereby united to him and by virtue of that union is no longer under the old covenant Jewish laws and ceremonies and rites and rituals and days and festivals. But is now under the law of Christ and the law has been written on his or her heart so that he or she now keeps the eternal moral law of God. Not out of some flesh driven obligation but out of a spirit wrought motivation that flows out of a very real union with Jesus who kept God's law on our behalf don't take my word for it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Your trespasses, what does that mean? The ways you have violated the law. Verse 14, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, listen to this, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. More than just replacing the Sabbath with a new Sabbath, Jesus himself is our Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was pointing to a greater rest, toward a rest that brings us peace with God through Jesus Christ, meaning that we are no longer working to deal with our sin, but resting in the one who has dealt with it once for all. That's what Hebrews 4 is all about. Showing us that the old covenant rest wasn't sufficient. The people coming into the land, of uh, the promised land, that wasn't enough rest. Hebrews 4, 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed have entered that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. as God did from His, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now there's a lot more there. That passage right there's somewhat complicated. We could take 20 weeks just to preach that. but I just want to point you to, Jesus is that final rest. Jesus is the true and final rest. For only in Jesus do we cease to work. Salvation is for those who cease to work, who depend not on their striving and on their labor on their exertion and on their effort to earn favor with God, but who depend on Christ alone. Who rest in Him alone. Who trust in Him alone for their salvation. That's what faith is. Faith is ceasing to work and instead resting in Christ. Oh, unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, stop trying to impress God and others with your work and come to Christ by faith and rest in Him alone for your salvation this morning. He is your Sabbath. You may ask, well, what about Sunday then? What do we do with that? Oh, my. Do we have time? Let's go ahead. Isn't Sunday the replacement of the Sabbath for the believer, for the Christian? I'm going to answer it down the middle of the road, ride a fence here, call me whatever you want to call me, waffler. I'm going to say yes and no, and here's why. No, in the sense that Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath and the Christian is no longer under it. The New Testament always refers to Christ alone as the fulfillment of the shadows. We are not to believe that a new day has replaced the shadow of an old day. Yet, we do live in the New Covenant era, and not all the benefits of the New Covenant have yet been fully realized. It's that already-not-yet paradigm that we talk about often. Look at Hebrews 8. Well, you don't have to look there. I'm going to just read to you. Hebrews 8. Verse 13, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Okay, so we're no longer under that first covenant. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The scripture writers speak like this all the time. They use different verb tenses in the same conversation. You're like, either they have bad grammar or we need to get something here. And that is there's an already completed work of Christ, but there's a not yet full realization for it for us. Because that's what he's talking about here. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. It was and is vanishing, but we still live with remnants. So, So listen to this. What happens to us in between this inauguration of the kingdom, the new covenant, and its full consummation? Well, for the believer, for those due to our union with Jesus Christ, the law is now written on our hearts. So we are no longer under the Ten Commandments But instead, we are compelled by the Spirit to keep those commandments because we want to keep them, including the Sabbath. We want to set aside a day of the week to draw near to God, to cease from our worldly labor, to focus on God, to turn away from our worldly distractions, to enjoy God over and against our worldly pleasures. We desire it. It flows out of us, so we gather together to worship, and for that very purpose, we do so on a day. But we no longer do it on Saturday. The Old Covenant Day. We do it on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. The day the Son of Man rose from the grave. Sunday was when he met with his disciples after his resurrection on more than one occasion, by the way. Sunday was the day that he met with his disciples. Oh, Pentecost. Pentecost happened on a Sunday when the Spirit came. Sunday was the day the apostle John met with the risen Lord in Revelation chapter one. It was the Lord's day. John was the first one to use that phrase, the Lord's day. Therefore, Sunday is the day that God's people gathered together to meet with our Savior, just like the early church did in Acts twenty and in First Corinthians sixteen. Remember what the Sabbath is again. It involved creation. Sunday was the day that Jesus' new creation work was finished when he rose from the grave. It involved deliverance from slavery. Sunday was the day that Jesus delivered us from sin and from the grave once for all through his resurrection. It was a sign of the old covenant. Sunday was the day that Jesus' new covenant was confirmed as his sacrifice was shown to be accepted by God and shown to be totally sufficient through the empty grave. Sunday is our little S Sabbath, but Jesus is our big S Sabbath. We set apart a day now because we found rest in Christ and we await its full realization upon his return. And so we gather joyfully with other believers on the Lord's day as we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come that we might find our final rest in you. So that's my view of the Sunday and the Sabbath. So, that's what Jesus is declaring in this passage. And as we mentioned before, Jesus oftentimes gives a wonder to confirm his word. Or a miracle to confirm his message. And so we have a declaring of Jesus as the Son, as the Lord of the Sabbath. And now, in the rest of this passage, we're going to read quickly here. He has a demonstration that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? See, he's asking them if they understand the purpose of the Sabbath. Do you get it that God gave it to man to bless him and not to burden him? Do you get that? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He was angry. Yet he was grieved. Oh, how much we have to learn from Jesus about his reaction to sin. He looked at them with anger. This is in the aorist tense, meaning it was momentary. And then it says he was grieved, and this is the present tense, and it has a continuous meaning to it. So Jesus is angry at sin. Unbeliever, Jesus is angry at sin. And the wrath of God is upon you if you've not confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But more than that, he is grieved as you continue to harden your heart against him. Anger gives way to grief. But now he shows them that he is indeed Lord of the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now you would think that the Pharisees would at that point repent and believe. Say, yes, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh my goodness. And repent of their previous actions. But no. The heart hardened by pride and self-righteousness hates God and hates men. And the Pharisees prove it. Because verse 6, it says, They went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Usually the Herodians were political enemies of the Pharisees. You want to know what will bring bipartisanship? Jesus brings bipartisanship because whether you're Republican or Democrat, if you're unconverted, you hate Jesus. Period. Period. And that's what was happening in Israel. All of a sudden there's bipartisanship as the Herodians and the Pharisees get together. Because ultimately their enemy was God. And you'll side with anyone to get rid of him. How about you, friend? What do you think about this man who claims to be sovereign over the Sabbath? Meaning that he is creator. And that he's the only deliverer. And he's the only one that can bring you into covenant with God. Meaning he's the only one that can bring you peace with God. He's the only one that can bring you rest with God. Do you believe him? Or will your heart be hardened like that of the Pharisees? Friends, God's law is perfect. But if you are here trusting in your goodness, trying to earn your salvation, and God's law hasn't functioned as it should, which is to show you your sinfulness and turn you to the Savior, But instead, you've read God's law, or maybe you haven't read God's law, but you come up with your own law, and you're trying to live life through some sort of checklist to be obedient to God and somehow earn your salvation. Friends, your attitude is as foolish and as silly as all those silly laws I read at the very beginning. Absolutely silly. you think you can earn favor with the Almighty by showing up on Sunday service? I read in your Bible a few times. Friends, there is nothing you can do. All you are called to do is to rest in Jesus, who's already done it all. Rest in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly <clears throat> Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for Jesus, who is our Sabbath rest and thank you for this day, this Lord's day that you gave us as well. That we might continue to gather together and observe a day where we, we do rest in you. We do cease from the toil that we have in this crazy world we live in. And we do so with our brothers and sisters. And we do it because it's on our heart to do it. We want to do it. But God, we don't put any stock, we don't put any hope in gathering together on Sundays. Our hope is in Christ alone, who is our Sabbath rest. So Jesus, thank you for bringing us peace with God. It is only because of you, Jesus, that we can have peace with the Father. It's the only way he can be a father. Because we're only children once we've been adopted. Adopted because of the work of God on our behalf, through Jesus, through you, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you today for opening up our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes to, to hear you, to hear your word. Thank you for allowing my voice to survive to the end. And so, God, we pray now that you be with us as we sing this final song. And we come into this time of response to respond with our offerings and prayer requests and maybe just sitting down where we're at and praying, and, but singing this song as well. So, Jesus, this is all for you. We praise you and thank you. And Lord, I pray that there be any sinners in here who have not turned to you, who are unbelievers, that they would come, come to Jesus this morning. I'll be standing here in the front. Lord, if there be anyone here who wants to talk to me about the gospel, I'll be happy to do it. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.